I'd like to welcome everybody to uh, the National Security Studies Seminar Series. I'm Rick Herman, the director here at the Mershon Center. It's uh, a great pleasure today to have Rand Beers with us. But before I introduce him, I want to thank Mark Jacobson. Where did Mark disappear to? Without Mark, I don't think we would have connected to Rand. Mark is spending the year as a visiting fellow here, and we're very pleased to have him. And I want to thank him for there's Mark. Uh, for setting this up for us. Uh, Rand Beers retired after 35 years of government service, and his last position in the government was special assistant to the president and senior director for combating, combating terrorism at the National Security Council at the White House. Before that, he was assistant secretary of state for international narcotics and law enforcement affairs for four years. And before that, he served in three or four different tours at the National Security Council, dealing with issues of counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, intelligence policy, and peacekeeping. In his career, he's also served in the State Department at the Bureau of Political Military Affairs and as Deputy Office Director of the Off and Office Director covering regional political military problems in the Middle East. He was a Marine officer and a rifle company commander in Vietnam for four years, and he entered the Foreign Service in 1971. He served both overseas and in Washington. Last year, or actually earlier this year, in the spring, he began working for John Kerry for president as the National Security and Homeland Security Issue Coordinator. It's with great pleasure that I introduce Rand Beers to talk today about Are We Safer? Thank you very much for that kind introduction and Thank you for the opportunity to come and talk about uh, what I think is uh, the most significant foreign policy or national security question that we face today in the United States. I think it's fair to say that after the 11th of September, the President of the United States uh, did a very good job in terms of rallying the country and providing us with a sense of direction and focus in terms of going after uh, al-Qaeda, in uh, the terrorist sanctuary that existed in Afghanistan. Uh, I think that uh, we scored uh, a number of brilliant military victories in both Afghanistan and Iraq. But I think it's also important to remember, and I hope to be able to lay out for you, some of the striking failures and missed opportunities that we've also uh, experienced in the time since the 11th of September. Um, we have an enormous challenge that we're facing today in the form of al-Qaeda and its affiliates in the larger jihadist movement, and I think that it's important for all of us to have an appreciation for that. What I'd like to do today using Afghanistan, Iraq, and Homeland Security uh, is explore where we are uh, today and what the current state uh, of American security looks like. But I think in order to go through this, uh, it's important, first of all, uh, to look at al-Qaeda and the jihadist movement. Uh, and what U.S. strategy overall uh, is uh, uh, supposed to be. <clears throat> First, and I think very significantly, it's important to remember that al-Qaeda is what we call a non-state actor. There is no state, there is no country that is al-Qaeda. And that it is probably first among equals in what I would call a much larger worldwide uh, jihadist movement. Um, al-Qaeda has no geographic vital interest, even Afghanistan was expendable. It has uh, no uh, other vital interests except the possibility or the ability to communicate uh, its general message on a global basis, both with words uh, and deeds. And it has no interest in negotiating with the United States uh, to move out of the current state of struggle uh, between us and them. <coughs> But it is also important to remember that al-Qaeda is not alone. It has a number of affiliates, and there are other independent jihadists who now act with little guidance or direction from al-Qaeda. Um, driving al-Qaeda underground in Afghanistan led to a diffusion of this terrorist effort. And in fact, it may have strengthened the overall movement, and I think events in uh, Turkey most recently, but also in the Philippines, in Indonesia, uh, in Kenya, 
in other places around the world suggest the extent of this terrorist movement against the United States. Laid out against that is an American strategy which is primarily offensive, focused on countering the leadership, disrupting their operations, and denying sanctuaries in foreign countries. It is also designed to protect likely targets both here in the United States and abroad. It also seeks to work uh, with friends and allies to the extent possible. And most recently, uh, it also seeks to influence the Islamic world uh, to reject terrorism uh, by our support for reform uh, and democracy. But essentially, it is an offensive and an external uh, kind uh, of strategy. The first test of the strategy uh, was in Afghanistan. And I think clearly there was a great initial success there. The world assembled the largest international coalition that had ever been constituted under the UN and under the UN Security Council Resolution 1373. And for the first time in the history of the United Nations, there was no argument about what the definition of terrorism was, an argument that had crippled using the UN to look at the Arab-Israeli dispute for its entire history. There was a brilliant military victory in Afghanistan based on the use of uh, surrogate forces together with our own special forces and CIA paramilitaries and precision-guided munitions. The Taliban and al-Qaeda were flushed. Uh, Kabul was liberated in a uh, joyful uh, period, uh, harking back to Paris in 1944. The political leadership of Afghanistan was constituted in Bonn in December of uh, 2001, overcoming a number of bitter ethnic rivalries, or at least papering over them, with the selection of President Karzai as the leader and Vice President and Defense Minister Fahim as the chief representative of the Northern Alliance, which was the largest military organization in the country at the time. The Tokyo Donors Conference in January of 2002 created the most impressive donor uh, pledges to date for any other or, uh, peacekeeping activity. Uh, and the United Nations and the World Bank uh, stood ready uh, to take this money uh, and implement programs in Afghanistan. And finally, in the summer of 2002, the lawyer Jirga was brought together in order to reinforce the selection of President Karzai uh, and, and elect him as the leader uh, of the transitional government uh, until a constitution could be, uh, could be drafted, and it set up a constitutional process. This whole scheme of events, I think, represented uh, a real high point in terms of America's and the world's effort to try to deal uh, with al-Qaeda uh, and the terrorist uh, threat. But during that same time period, we began to see the seeds of an unraveling uh, that was occurring within Afghanistan. Uh, first of all, as many of you know, U.S. forces started to withdraw in the spring of 2002, uh, and they were coming home uh, in order to be ready uh, to go into Iraq. Uh, secondly, we missed an opportunity in Tora Bora to capture Osama bin Laden uh, in part because we were prepared to put surrogate forces out front rather than to use U.S. forces in a difficult uh, cave uh, uh, situation. Uh, as a result, uh, by his own words, we know that bin Laden was able uh, to escape uh, uh, in that particular attack. Thirdly, the United States was unprepared or unwilling to allow the U.N. International Security Assistance Force to be anything more than a police uh, uh, security force uh, in Kabul, despite requests by President Karzai uh, and members of the international community to allow a broader mandate for that force. Um, third, uh, fourthly, the United States, which took responsibility for the creation and organization of the Afghan National Army, which was to be the counterbalance to the militias, uh, was very slow uh, off the mark to organize the training function and very slow uh, to find the money uh, in order to support that organization. And as a result, that national army uh, is uh, a, a very small force, uh, even though we are now um, 
uh, well beyond uh, a year when, uh, from when uh, that force was supposed to begin organizing. Uh, similarly, the German effort to uh, create a police force uh, has also gone nowhere. The Japanese effort uh, at uh, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of the militias into uh, Afghan society to remove the, the uh, ability of the warlords uh, to have a counterforce to the central government has only begun uh, uh, to uh, be implemented. Uh, and as a result, the warlords uh, have never been entirely pacified and represent uh, counterweights uh, to a central government in Afghanistan. Uh, and finally, uh, we've ignored uh, the resurgence of the Afghan poppy crop, uh, a one to two billion dollar infusion into uh, Afghan society of money uh, to support uh, countervailing forces to the central government uh, and corruption. Uh, a uh, crop uh, which sucks uh, labor away from legitimate economic activity uh, and into uh, uh, a, a source of, uh, uh, of destabilization. All of these, I think, have been coming together uh, over the course of the uh, past year uh, and, and are, uh, in fact, quite evident now. The security situation is manifested by the increasing number of Taliban uh, attacks against uh, government uh, installations or, in some cases, international, uh, the international presence, either U.S. military uh, or uh, international assistance. And uh, as a result of that, uh, the average citizen uh, in Afghanistan is telling people, uh, uh, these citizens are telling people that they feel less secure today than they did under the Taliban, which is a, uh, a sad a commentary uh, on where that, uh, uh, the state of affairs is today. Uh, as a result of this instability, the international assistance to uh, uh, reconstruct the economy uh, has been uh, even slower than it normally is uh, to uh, provide the kinds of institutional support and economic development that are absolutely critical uh, to uh, stabilizing Afghanistan for the future. I think that the, the recent reevaluations on the part of the administration uh, to uh, provide more assistance uh, and more attention uh, in Afghanistan are suggestive of a new momentum which will hopefully go uh, in, the, in the right direction. Um, I don't think that there is an immediate danger that al-Qaeda and the Taliban are going to return uh, to power, but I do fear that the slow erosion of central government authority coupled with the lack of security, uh, uh, which could be followed by a loss of international interest in <coughs> Afghanistan over time, uh, is the, ba the, the worst scenario that we have at this time uh, uh, to fear, because that would, in fact, represent a, a gradual uh, return to the chaos that spawned al-Qaeda and, um, and uh, the Taliban. Why did this happen? I think that it started with the shift of U.S. forces and attention away from Afghanistan and toward Iraq, but it was also based on an unrealistic expectation that the simple liberation of Afghanistan was going to create its own momentum and that there would be little or no security problems. It was also based on the assumption that most of the reconstruction tasks would be carried out by other countries, denying the history of previous peacekeeping situations in which the United States leadership had been the central glue for keeping those kinds of activities on track and moving ahead. I think also the administration believed that the Taliban and al-Qaeda had been mortally wounded in Afghanistan, and they also did not focus clearly on how much the warlords represented a source of instability. In addition, there was an unwillingness to work with Iran to stem that country becoming a sanctuary for at least leadership cadres uh, in al-Qaeda, and there was an unwillingness or inability to work with Pakistan to seal the Pakistan-Afghan border. 
and finally, as I said before, uh, there was a total ignoring of the poppy problem. That isn't to say uh, that we can't reverse these, uh, these events in Afghanistan, but it's going to take a determined effort. And we have to make that effort beginning in the next uh, months uh, ahead. In terms of Iraq, there are a lot of similarities with Afghanistan, but we started uh, in a uh, difficult situation uh, that was not reflective of Afghanistan. We began the entry into Iraq with turmoil over, with our allies over that entry, fragmenting the UN unity that existed in Afghanistan. <clears throat> Still, we won a significant military victory, probably uh, the image of what Blitzkrieg in the 21st century, in fact, uh, will look like. But in that military victory lay the seeds of the problems that followed, because in that victory we had a force which was too small and which was not configured for the follow-on reconstruction and nation-building uh, activities. Uh, if uh, Afghanistan wasn't a lesson about the need for dealing with security from the very beginning, then one could look back at all of the preceding peacekeeping situations that were experienced from Somalia through Haiti to the Balkans and East Timor. In each one of those situations, security was the initial paramount problem, and until security was dealt with, all other activities in reconstruction were not going to happen or were going to happen at so slow a pace that, that they represented uh, uh, little uh, in support of creating the ultimate stable situation. The situation in Iraq uh, was manifested in the initial looting, but also the failure uh, to uh, protect not only the weapons of mass destruction uh, uh, sites, but the simple conventional ammunition sites, which are now the source of much of the attacks that are occurring in Iraq against the United States and the international community. Uh, in addition, the oil infrastructure uh, was uh, similarly not protected, uh, and as a result, uh, the expectation that oil would provide funding to Iraq uh, uh, for reconstruction has uh, not been realized. Uh, and uh, is going to require a major security effort uh, in order to realize. This situation was compounded by the lack of allies, uh, both in terms of the numbers that those allies might have represented for uh, a security force, but also in terms of the dollars that those allies who were invested in the security situation might have been prepared to devote to the reconstruction and also in terms of the international legitimacy that a much broader base coalition might have accorded the United States and its British allies. As a result, uh, we find continued instability with the Ba'athists uh, ha who have nowhere to go, uh, relying upon their old networks and the ammunition stocks to create uh, a sense of instability uh, at least in uh, uh, Baghdad and in the uh, triangle, uh, the Sunni triangle to the north of Baghdad. Um, we also have now reports of foreign fighters or terrorists who are exacerbating the instability, in particular with their willingness to use suicide tactics uh, against the U.S. and the international presence there. Um, I think that the effort that the administration has announced recently uh, to train uh, Iraqi security forces is clearly a move in the right direction, but I am deeply concerned that the training program that's been announced is absolutely unrealistic in terms of the amount of time that it actually takes to train security forces and to mentor them before they can actually uh, take on serious security <coughs> missions by themselves and the time frame for the beginning of the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq, which is now being set out as sometime next summer. Uh, it is, in my view, uh, going to take two to three years to train, equip, and most importantly, mentor the security forces that will have to be able to stand alone 
on the streets and in the countryside in Iraq if there is to be a real security force there to deal with the inherent instability in a country in which there are three major ethnic groups who have only gotten along under a great deal of central government authority and suppression. That kind of uh, uh, recipe for instability is going to require uh, some careful planning uh, and effort. On the governance side, I think that the inter Interim Governing Council was a good idea, but sadly, the U.S. didn't provide the kind of support legitimacy to that by failing to turn over any degree of sovereignty uh, in the initial period. And I think that the recent reversal on the part of the administration to talk about an earlier turnover of sovereignty is certainly a move in, in the right direction and hopefully not a... Uh, uh, bridge too late or bridge too far too late uh, that that will uh, in fact uh, be unsuccessful. Um, it was the model in Afghanistan and it was the model in previous peacekeeping activities to, find, to constitute and turn over sovereignty to some representative officials in the countries in which the peacekeeping efforts were made. And it was uh, a surprise uh, to me, that uh, we weren't prepared to look uh, at a similar uh, kind of situation. Karzai was the president of Iraq from the very beginning. The amount of actual authority that he had was very limited because he had no infrastructure, he had no government, he had no money. But that simple act, of turning over that authority had an enormous political benefit in Afghanistan. And it seems remarkable that we didn't uh, do the same thing uh, in Iraq. Uh, now uh, we face uh, an uncertain situation, which will hopefully go uh, better than where we have been, uh, but uh, we're going to have to follow through very clearly and carefully uh, on this. I think we got here because the administration was unprepared uh, to uh, really engage in the kind uh, of nation building uh, that they had been so critical of, uh, both in uh, the Republican criticisms of the Clinton administration, but more importantly, uh, uh, the Bush uh, campaign uh, uh, slogan that, that we would not become uh, involved in these kinds of activities. I think also that was compounded by the fact that uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld was so determined to showcase the new modern form of warfare that it eclipsed clear thinking in the Pentagon uh, about reconstruction. Now, that might not have been a problem if the Pentagon hadn't also been given responsibility for reconstruction, something that the State Department had done with better or worse results, but had done and had experience in doing for the preceding 10 years. Um, this was further compounded by some intelligence which said that resistance would be slight and that there would be, as in Afghanistan, a massive halo effect that would result uh, from the liberation of Baghdad uh, and the removal of Saddam Hussein. Additionally, I think there was a sense that the United Nations is an ineffectual organization and there's obviously some truth to that, and that Afghanistan, in fact, because it didn't proceed as well as people would have hoped, uh, also uh, was a further reinforcement for why uh, the UN uh, shouldn't have a role in the minds of uh, the Bush administration. Uh, additionally, allies were seen as a, an encumbrance uh, both in the fighting of coalition warfare and in the reconstruction, when in fact it would be allies that provided the additional security, money, and legitimacy. Uh, and finally, uh, I think that there was just an unwillingness to look uh, at the lessons learned uh, from Somalia, Haiti, the Balkans, and East Timor. Lessons that were as much negative what not to do as positive what to do. Uh, but a lot of, of real uh, history uh, that was worth looking at. So now we find ourselves 
uh, with a situation that's clearly still evolving, but regarding which there are, I think, um, three uh, major uh, issues for concern. Firstly, um, the terrorist involvement uh, is bad enough uh, uh, in what has happened so far. But I think more importantly, Iraq is providing a recruiting poster for uh, the terrorist jihadist movement around the world. And that, I think, is more troubling than what's actually happening in Iraq uh, today. Uh, secondly, uh, the Shia, the largest group within Iraq, are clearly still sitting on the fence. They haven't come out in opposition uh, to the co uh, coalition provisional authority, but they haven't been doing much uh, in the way of help. And if they decide that the occupation uh, or the reconstruction effort by uh, outside forces is something that they don't want uh, to be part of, then uh, that would represent a major turn uh, in a negative uh, direction. Uh, and, and finally, uh, I think as long as we continue to be perceived as an occupier uh, of an indefinite duration, we will uh, continue to be uh, a uh, subject uh, of attack uh, and uh, uh, abuse, uh, as recently happened in the streets of Mosul uh, over the weekend. Um, that kind of event will evoke both here a very strong reaction, as it did uh, when it happened in Mogadishu, but it will also reinforce within Iraq a certain sense of going after Americans uh, and, and taking that kind of action in fury and outrage for what isn't happening uh, in Iraq. What we need to do, and I think the administration understands that, the question is how they will execute it, is uh, create a real Iraqi security force and government uh, and hopefully find a way uh, to bring in more international forces. But by waiting so long on the latter initiative, uh, we may be uh, deprived uh, of those forces uh, for some time to come. Moving on to homeland security, um, I think uh, it is uh, fair to say that the initial response by the administration of uh, trying to create uh, a homeland security program uh, was uh, an important uh, reassurance to the American public that we, the administration, would do everything that it possibly could in order to uh, protect uh, Americans at home uh, from another catastrophic attack, as was uh, the 11th of September. The first response was essentially White House-centered. Tom Ridge was brought down from Pennsylvania to become the Homeland Security Advisor. There was an immediate move uh, to fix uh, aviation security, a move which uh, uh, I think is uh, proof that a difficult problem can be attacked uh, uh, with real determination and results uh, can be produced in a relatively short period of time. It's not a perfect system, but it is a lot better and I think most of us as air travelers today don't feel overwhelmed by the additional uh, kinds of actions that we have to go through, except maybe when you get to be the random person who's selected for <laughs> having your bag gone through and, and everything searched. But um, I think it, it represents a real uh, move on the administration's part uh, to produce uh, a sense of forward progress in terms of providing additional uh, protection for the homeland. Shortly after that, however, Congress wanted to become involved, and Congress's response was to suggest that more money was necessary, that more effort needed to be uh, undertaken to resolve some of the intelligence cooperation and coordination deficiencies that were evident from the September 11th attack, uh, and to create a new Department of Homeland Security, a, a reorganization that had actually been talked about prior, uh, prior to the 11th of September. Um, the administration uh, resisted those moves uh, across the board until it became evident that there was going to be a Department of Homeland Security, whereupon the president in June uh, of last year uh, announced that he was now in favor 
of a homeland security and produced his own reorganization plan uh, for how that might uh, be undertaken. Uh, during the summer of 2002, the administration began planning for that department, uh, even though the bill uh, had, been, uh, had not been passed uh, because it became uh, an election issue uh, between the Republicans and Democrats over uh, a labor rights dispute. Um, after the election, though, uh, it seems to me that the energy that was evident in those early days uh, began to wane and that the planning uh, and the programs uh, were not getting done. Uh, when Ridge was designated secretary uh, for the new department, uh, even though uh, there had been uh, a number of planning initiatives uh, under his command as the Homeland Security Advisor, he essentially threw them out and started over again so that by December, uh, four months' worth of planning effort was disregarded uh, and a whole new planning effort was undertaken, uh, which resulted in him being sworn in at the end of January, but no uh, initial operating capability for the department being announced uh, until the 1st of March. Uh, in addition, that organization and the personnel uh, to fill uh, the slots uh, have been slow to come by. Uh, there has been no assessment of the threat to the United States from terrorists. There's been no study of what the requirements are to defend against that threat. And there's been no overall review of the existing capabilities. As a result, there is, in fact, no real strategy and there is no real budget with any kind uh, of priority setting that would be required normally in a budget. And the programs which should have emerged from that process are either slow uh, or non-existent. As a result, we have in the critical areas of ports, chemical industries, uh, chemical and biological threats, first responders, and the electric grid programs, which are uh, either simply nascent or non-existent. The color code system uh, seems to have created more problems than help. We have no single watch list, even though that was noted as a problem five years before the 11th of September. We still have an intelligence coordination problem. State and local governments are still asked to perform tasks without be, being given funds in a period of fiscal austerity when they themselves are unable to produce those funds. The budget uh, is viewed, the budget for Homeland Security is viewed as inadequate by everyone except for the administration, even by Republican members of Congress. Fortunately, we have had no attacks, and we have a very dedicated group of law enforcement officials and CIA intelligence officials who are working hard to prevent that. Some will be critical of the overzealousness of their effort, uh, but they are I think fairly uh, uh, characterized as a very dedicated group of individuals. Why, why has this progress been so slow for um, something that the president said was so uh, significant, the greatest reorganization since the Department of Defense? Well, it's certainly true, I think, that everyone knew that it was going to take a long time uh, and that it was going to be hard to measure progress and that we couldn't expect miracles. But, in fact, since that announcement last, not this past summer, the summer of 2002, to the best of my uh, uh, knowledge, there's really been no presidential leadership on this issue. And as a result, the bureaucracy, which is inherently conservative, has gone into a business-as-usual mode, uh, fighting turf wars between the various elements of this new department and producing unending piles of t paperwork. This work... This organizational work, in fact, was preceded by three administrations working on this subject. This is not a new problem. There was a presidential commission in the Clinton administration that was led by a four-star General Marsh looking at critical infrastructure security. Unfortunately, I think that part of the problem for this administration is that the whole concept of homeland security is one that doesn't sit well with the political perspectives of this administration. Uh, firstly, the uh, administration, as I said, is, is much more uh, uh, interested in an offensive strategy, which is certainly more, interest, more interesting, more newsworthy, and more results-oriented. 
But I also think that there are four other factors uh, that influence the administration. First of all, any Department of Homeland Security means that government will grow. Any Department of Homeland Security will cost more money in a time of larger deficits. Any Department of Homeland Security will spend that money domestically. And if you have any sense of priorities, that domestic spending will be in major urban centers, which incidentally tend to vote Democratic. And finally, the Department of Homeland Security will require standard setting and regulation. All of those, I think, are difficult issues philosophically for this administration uh, to deal with and I think have created this, this sense of lack of progress uh, in dealing with this. So where are we today? I think that uh, Afghanistan and Iraq are at best uncertain and that Homeland Security is, struck, is, is stuck uh, in the mud. Afghanistan and Iraq are under review but the administration has difficulty shifting amidst dueling interests within the administration uh, and trouble in admitting its own mistakes. Uh, meanwhile, uh, nuclear weapons uh, and the problems of proliferation in North Korea and Iran uh, remain unresolved, and we are only beginning now to talk about the source of terrorist recruitment. I would close with two thoughts. The first is to read you four questions in the 11-question list that Don Rumsfeld wrote on the 16th of October. We are having mixed results with al-Qaeda, although we have put considerable pressure on them. Nonetheless, a great many re remain at large. Are the changes we have and are making too modest and too incremental? My impression is that we have yet to make truly bold moves, although we have made sens sensible and logical moves in the right direction, but they are not enough. Today, we lack the metrics to know if we are winning or losing the war on terror. Are we capturing, killing, or deterring, or dissuading more terrorists every day than the madrasas and the radical clerics are recruiting, training, and deploying against us? And finally, does the U.S. need to fashion a broad, integrated plan to stop the next generation of terrorists? The U.S. is putting relatively little effort into a long-range plan, but we are putting a great deal of effort into trying to stop terrorists. The cost-benefit ratio is against us. Our cost is billions <coughs> against the terrorist millions. And finally, a vignette that Spignew Brzezinski has been telling recently in talking uh, and writing uh, about this problem. He recalls that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy sent former Secretary of State Dean Acheson to Paris to talk to President Charles de Gaulle about French support for the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Atchison spoke to de Gaulle, gave him a briefing of what the problem was and what the president intended to do. At the end of the briefing, he offered to show President de Gaulle the pictures that the president of the United States had sent along to show what the Russians were doing in Cuba. President de Gaulle said, I have no need to see those pictures. I take the assurance of the President of the United States. And Brzezinski closes with, could that happen today? Thank you. I will take questions. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gary. Yeah. Um, much is, is made, and you mentioned this in your talk, of getting more troops in the world. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be better if there was a lot more uh, people around there? But couldn't you also argue against that by saying, gosh, you know, just put more troops in there, and that just presents more targets? Uh, so what you need to do, it seems to me, is to put in more troops as a very explicit goals that those new troops would do, rather than just doing the same old thing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So, uh, are, there any, are there any plans that, or would you suggest new roles for new troops? Uh, do you have any ideas what those new roles I think, would be? I, I think that on, on one level, 
Secretary Rumsfeld is in fact right when he says we can change the configuration, the relationship between what is called the tooth-to-tail ratio can certainly be changed to put more combat forces. The second thing that can be done is that the types of forces there can be modified so that they're more appropriate to the tasks that are undertaken. Special forces, military police, people who do psychological operations are sort of the three off the top of, of most people's head that could be increased in, in number. The problem with those three categories, though, is that as we've changed the active reserve force mixture, a lot of those are now in the reserve force, which puts another level of stress on our reserve forces who are finding themselves deployed more than they're at home these days. So we can do it, but it will also be a stressful situation. I mean, what has basically happened is that the reductions in the size of the military as a result of the end of the Cold War are probably no longer appropriate for the kinds of activities that the United States faces in the world today, which isn't to say that we have to do it all alone. Can I just follow up on a related point? Uh, Rumsfeld, I think, once said a few days ago that all of the TV networks that are operated uh, in Iraq are all anti-coalition. Would one or could one of the new ta- the tasks that these new troops form to be actual media relations? That's the question. Why haven't we done this before? It seems so obvious. Um, it took an extended <laughs> period of time in Afghanistan to do the same thing, and I don't know the answer to why we haven't done it yet in Iraq. Um, we certainly have the capability to create a broadcast capability there and I don't know why we haven't why we haven't done it there's still the issue of whether or not people would listen to anything that we broadcast but um, the Iranian um, exile broadcasts in Iran are certainly listened to by Iranians who have access to satellite television so it's it's not that Al Jazeera uh, and other Arab media w- would necessarily have uh, a, a uh, full market if we could produce that. So I agree with you. John? Yeah. How many American lives would you say it's worth to bring peace and stability and democracy and prosperity to Afghanistan and Iraq? That, I, that, I don't think that's it. I don't, I don't, I would not, I do not have an answer to that question. And I don't think that that's the right question. I think that the right question is, what ought our goals and objectives be in Afghanistan, and are we prepared to undertake them? Accepting that that means money and lives. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I think that in terms of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, We haven't gotten to that point yet, but we've also managed it poorly enough that the ability to continue support for those activities on the part of the American public is certainly in jeopardy. And if that erodes, it will be difficult for any administration to sustain the effort, and that would be sad because the consequences of the withdrawal from Iraq or Afghanistan could be quite significant, and I think well beyond the overemphasized consequences of U.S. Uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. I think it's different. I don't think we ever do have a reason for preemptive strike in Iraq, and in fact, I never thought that from the beginning. The has never shown up, and it still seems to be clear that there's no justification. I also didn't believe that an attack in Iraq in any way secure that our safety doesn't work. In fact, when you start throwing up a hornet's nest, you can expect something to be stuck. This is halfway around the world. And this whole initiative can't be explained by the things that are being talked And to compare this to Vietnam, is a for sure. But we're at the exact model that Israel has been doing for 50 years. Look at our recent activity, our 
our Nazi iron hammer attack to suburban areas or residential areas with bombs and, and tanks and everything else to suspects? Doesn't that sound familiar? Israel's been blowing up the homes of suspects. They have been taking a military, modern military army into residential areas and killing and blowing up people. That's what we're doing. What is their result? That's the model we look at. For 50 years, they're worse off than ever been by that model. And the philosophy behind the operation is the same. Israel said, they're going to destroy us, so anything we do is self-defense. We're saying they want to take away our freedom, so anything we do is to protect our freedom. The model's the same. And if there's a war on terror, every time we do something, we create more terrorists. So when you, when you look at the whole thing, the same uh, model, what you've got is um, continuous war or continuous peace. What's the expression from Solomon? Um, you have a question? Perpetual war for perpetual war. <laughs> okay. Perpetual war for So my question to you is, <laughs> is where is the end of this war against terror? You're already mentioned all over the world, and we're creating new terrorists every day. I think that the end to the war on terror is not likely to be the result of military action, although I do think that there will be occasions in which military action will be an appropriate response, and I think that Afghanistan was one of those situations. I did not choose to talk about the causes of going into Iraq, but only the degree to which the current situation <coughs> creates an instability that makes our place in the world less safe rather than more safe. Um, I think there was a justification for going into Iraq. I think that the way in which we went into to Iraq was uh, uh, a ill-chosen route and that had we not uh, chosen uh, the route that we've chosen, things might be better. But I think you're also right it wasn't necessary to go into Iraq at the time that we did. And part of what we are dealing with now is clearly a result of that. And having done it, now we have to figure out how to deal with where we are and get out of it. I think that the, that the answer to your question that, that I at least ascribe to is that this is, a, that this is a generational, at least a generational process within the Islamic world that the forces that have been unleashed by al-Qaeda and the jihadist movement are representative of a uh, sense among uh, some members of Islam that the secular uh, movements around the world are, are heresy and they have to be dealt with and they can only be dealt with through violence. We have to hold at bay those forces to the best we possibly can while finding ways to create or support, more appropriately, not create, not us, to support the forces of moderation and uh, a sense of uh, the rule of law uh, in the Arab world, uh, in the Islamic world, so that so that the ability of terrorist movements to recruit is less and the support that they find in the general population is diminished. And over time, that may uh, allow uh, this process to go away and we'll only know that it's gone sometime after it's over. Yeah. Chris? I just have a, I'm kind of curious about the campaign you're working on there. Would President Kerry increase the number of troops in Iraq and or is he haunted or affected by the idea of the parallels of Vietnam or maybe he haunted by the specter of maybe a, uh, an Iraqi veteran someday throwing his medals out of the carry and whatnot. Something that comes up. Um, in terms of what President Kerry might do, he has <laughs> put forward in a meet the press uh, interview at the end of August, which was 
a UN resolution that authorized multinational force led by the United States. Got it. A um, internationalization of the effort, uh, drawing in more international forces and giving the UN a greater role in the governance. Didn't get it. A um, turnover of sovereignty to the Iraqi people in a process that didn't require that the Constitution uh, be drafted and an assembly uh, be elected. Got it. Uh, and uh, rapid creation of a real Iraqi security force. Got it. The question is whether the implementation that the administration has agreed to on the latter two goals will in fact be uh, what he was saying. I think in terms of additional U.S. forces that Kerry would first seek to go to the European and other allies with a genuine offer of what is regarded as the quid pro quo that could have evoked those forces and money, which is to share the responsibility for the governance in Iraq more broadly than the narrowly defined coalition provisional authority. That's what he would do. In the end, if additional American forces were necessary, he would look at it. But he's not prepared to concede that that is the first course of action at this particular time. Yeah, Dominic? Do you think the U.S. public believes that they're winning the war in town? And what factors are influencing their perception of whether they're winning or not? Polling suggests that that is in doubt at this particular point in time. And it has been a steady erosion of that belief uh, most recently because of Iraq. I think up until the violence and losses uh, of Americans in Iraq that the American people um, thought that the war was going well. And what is striking to me is that despite the dismal record that I've outlined on homeland security, the general assumption here in the United States is the administration tending to that quite well. Yes, sir. Uh, there's been a debate in the Department of Defense and JCS about a change in force structure where you would end up with a, a group of, I'll call them war fighters, and a second group uh, that would be uh, stabilization and administrative troops. And uh, my question is not whether that debate is correct or not, but with the war in Iraq and the way it is, is coming out, what is the impact on the all-volunteer force if you tried to make that change within DOD, and what's the impact of the current war? Well, first of all, if that were agreed to, it would take quite some time to work its, its way through the force structure. Um, and um, so it wouldn't be immediate, but it would it would um, begin obviously to affect the decisions that members of the armed services took with respect to their own careers, uh, and and would be I think uh, to some degree uh, a destabilization. That's not a reason not to do it. I have another reason not to do it. Uh, I don't believe that function belongs predominantly in the Defense Department. I think that function belongs either in the State Department or in a separate agency. And the problem that exists is that we have a notion that it is okay, and it is okay, for the United States military to basically be a training establishment for most of the time and to be an active uh, force in a war situation some of the time but we're not prepared to allow any other part of the U.S. government, the federal government, to do that. And as a result, if you try to establish that in any other agency, you have to carve out people who are going to be sitting around in a learning environment and in a training environment for some considerable amount of time. And we have not been willing to accept that that is a mission for the federal government. Um, but, but the notion that uh, civil administration 
the justice system, uh, the uh, creation of a viable economy is necessarily a military function. That doesn't, I'm, I mean, I, I served in the Marine Corps. I have enormous respect for the military. I think that's a digression from, from the functions that they ought to be focusing on, which is still security. I'm per, certainly prepared to support military missions in a security role associated with a post-conflict reconstruction environment. But I don't think that they need to be doing the civil administration. I mean, uh, Garner effort and now the Bremer effort all were predicated upon some civilians coming in and taking over these functions. I was in naval intelligence a few decades ago to characterize what I felt about American intelligence the CIA reports I saw the state reports I saw our own reports the army's reports and so on we were maybe good bureaucrats but generally very naive very uninformed terribly amateurish at the time, the best reports in the whole area, which was the Far East, were those by the British, who had actually lived in the various places you were When I look at, you know, I read the New Yorker and so on, and all the things that are going on in, in Iraq, I can't help but feel how nothing has changed. <laughs> and I wonder about you feel, with respect. Well, that's... Yes, <laughs> I, I don't know when precisely you were in the 50s. Okay. We saw from the 50s to now a significant shift, although we had technical collection in the 50s, to much greater reliance on technical collection, listening, satellite photos, and whatnot, as a major component in dollars and people within the intelligence community. And those pieces of information are clearly useful, but they don't provide the full range of information that I think makes uh, intelligence as rich as it should be. Um, this has been a complaint from the intelligence community for probably the last 15 to 20 years because of the shift that occurred in most people in the intelligence community's mind as a result of the church committee and the, uh, the complaints that arose out of that investigation about improper conduct on the part of the intelligence community. What we need to find is, in my mind, what is the right balance. But it's certainly clear today that with respect to Afghanistan and respect to Iraq, we knew little and now still know little or nothing about what's going on there, and then we don't have enough people who are language qualified to either listen to the technical collection or to operate uh, in the field. Um, the reports of the reliance uh, on translators uh, who are hired locally uh, is, I think, uh, an indication of the degree to which that's a problem, but, but it's much worse than that. We had no real sources in Iraq before the war. We were entirely dependent upon third country intelligence services providing us information. In some cases, I worry that they gave us what we wanted to hear rather than what we needed to hear. Yes? In what way might question how the first thing that you need to remember when we use the figure 87 billion dollars <laughs> is that $66 billion is entirely for the military. So we're really now only talking about $21 billion of discretionary funding. 
because the other 66 is not regarded as discretionary. Um, the notion that the United States is in the position of having to spend what in effect at this point in time based on the donors conference is two-thirds of the reconstruction money in Iraq when the normal US contribution in UN activities or other kinds of peacekeeping activities is 25% or less a figure that was insisted upon by the loyal opposition during the Clinton administration gives you a sense of how our priorities have gotten out of balance by the actions that we took. There are clearly other things that the money could be spent upon. The question is, are we prepared to therefore walk away from Iraq or find other solutions? Maybe there are other solutions. I don't know the answer to that question. But your question is right. Well, I mean, yes. That, no, no. The, the point about whether or not the money that's being spent within that 20, $21 billion is, in fact, cost-effective dollars is a real question. So it's not clear to me that all of that necessarily would be necessary for the objectives for which that money uh, is intended. The, the story, which I assume is true, about the cement plant, which most people have heard, it was going to cost uh, uh, several hundred million dollars, and the Iraqis built it for 80000 <laughs> They didn't build a new, top-of-the-line, modern plant. They just made the old plant work. But, you know, that meant that people had cement to work with right away, and that in and of itself was a huge uh, step forward. Yes, Thank you for your comments. It seems we've talked this afternoon about American security without touching the Patriot Act. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit about balancing the opportunity to secure the Patriot Act with the threats that are offered to civil liberties? The Patriot Act was wisely given a sunset clause to it. Um, it is as the administration would argue, um, not a question of the Patriot Act itself, but a question of how the act is, in fact, implemented, or the directives and guidelines that have flowed from the Justice Department rather than the law itself. The question, I think, becomes in terms of the debate in American society whether or not the actions on the part of the Attorney General <coughs> are, in fact, appropriate actions for the defense and protection of liberty in the United States or whether or not they are excessive. And if the Patriot Act serves as a surrogate for that discussion, then that's the place to have it. But I think that it's a real question. The detention of American citizens uh, without trial or bail uh, is a, an act that I find uh, uh, unacceptable. The um, notion that we have to uh, give up freedoms to the degree that they have been given up in order to defend ourselves against terrorism, I think uh, is a sad shame. We ought to find a way to do both things at the same time, and I think we can, but it's going to require some straight talking by people uh, both uh, on the public side of the ledger and in the administration to find those balances because it's always much easier to simply uh, take some aggressive action than it is to figure out the smart way to do the same thing. The examples are uh, the detention of uh, uh, aliens and whether or not you're in fact protecting the United States when there are a few of those aliens who seem to have any relationship or whether you're exacerbating relations with the uh, immigrant communities who can and in many cases will provide the information about activities by individuals within those communities that is uh, dangerous to the United States. It seems to me that that's a far better uh, line of approach to take 
than uh, aggressive detention. Yes, I, I just wanted to comment on your expertise in the sea of war secure in the homeland. Only borders are still rising. There are estimates of tens of millions of people coming into the country over the past about 10 years or so. And that only 45% of people coming across the border are actually Mexicans. And then we're importing people from Muslim countries like Somalia. We have 20,000 or 30,000 right now in Franklin County, who, if are not, we, who we know very little about because there's no government, and who can be recruited because they're here as Muslims. So I mean, how can we, how, how can the American people see some sort of balance? We got an army halfway around the world. Our borders are open, and we're letting people out. Of the, we're only checking. Uh, they got. I think that if we were to, in fact, <coughs> have the assessments that I described that were lacking during my presentation, we could have a public discussion about what needed to be done, and we could arrive at what could only ultimately be a situation of risk management. We will never protect ourselves perfectly. So we have to decide how much is enough. And that can be on the civil liberty side, and it can be on the infrastructure protection side. But we are not having that debate because we don't have the information to have that debate in the public domain. That would also, I think, allow us to discuss how much is enough with respect to activities outside of the United States, instead of simply saying, bring them on. Well, we're well past 1 o'clock, so I need to draw this to a close. I want to thank Rand Beers very much for coming. I want to thank all of you for coming, and I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much.